Hello, and welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Peter Bell, and we are on Catechism Thursday, episode number 18. And real quick, if you guys have not yet listened to Monday Morning's podcast with Dr. J.V. Fesco of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, he spoke about the covenant of works. That is an episode you are going to want to listen to understanding the garden, understanding Sinai, understanding its difference with the covenant of grace, how these relate with each other, how they're important for apologetics. It was a really interesting, really helpful podcast. So listen to that one first, then come back to Catechism Thursday and we'll move on. So for today, we have question and answers. 46 through 49. So question answer 46. What do you confess when you say he ascended, that is Christ, ascended into heaven? The answer, that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And here's our sinuses exposition of question answer 46. In this, as in the article of the resurrection of Christ, there are two things which chiefly claim our attention. It's history and fruits. In speaking of the history of the ascension of Christ, we must consider, then he does some quick question answers, who ascended? The very same person who suffered and rose again. According to what did he ascend? His human nature. Where did he ascend? Up to heaven, above the visible heavens. For what purpose did he ascend? He might be, that he might be, our head and high priest in heaven. How did he ascend? By the power of his Godhead. When did he ascend? The 40th day after his resurrection. From what place did he ascend? From Bethany, the Mount of Olives. And then he says, these may be reduced to the following questions. And there's five. First, where did he, Christ, ascend? Second, in what manner? Third, for what purpose? Fourth, in what does the ascension of Christ differ from ours? And fifth, what are the fruits of his ascension? And for the first question answer, 46, he will pursue the first two questions. And the next three questions and answers, he will develop in the last three question answers of the catechism. So question one, where did Christ ascend? He says, into heaven in his true human body in the sight of the disciples on the 40th day from Bethany. Christ ascended, therefore, in the heaven, which is the abode of the blessed, where he will come down to judge the world according to the testimony of the word of God, so that we know that is that it was manifest that he continues to be true man while remaining very man in heaven, where our thoughts should be directed and where our future home will be in which Christ will bring us. And that second question, 
In what manner did Christ ascend into heaven? He says, according to his human nature, he ascended locally and bodily. That is, he did truly pass from one place to another. Christ ascended into heaven visibly. He ascended by his own power, that is to say, of his Godhead, by which he also rose from the dead. He ascended on the 40th day after his resurrection. He ascended not to return before the day of judgment. We'll see why he makes such a big deal about bodily, human body resurrecting. Question answer 47. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Here's his answer. Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, his divine nature, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. And this is a huge distinction. And he's going to describe why this is such a crucial distinction for us. So he says in his exposition of question answer 47, this question and answer anticipate the ubiquitarians. That's a big word. He'll describe it who claim that Christ did not descend into heaven or ascended to heaven in his bodily form to no longer be with us on earth and everywhere by his humanity. They confuse, that is the ubiquitarians, the divine and human nature of Christ, the divine consuming the human. It may be thus truly expressed. Christ is always present with us with respect to his majesty, but as it regards the presence of his humanity, it was truly said to his disciples, me, you have not always with you. We now apprehend him. In other words of saying, we now know him. We now know him by faith, only by faith. Christ, therefore, is present with us by his spirit and Godhead, by our faith and the confidence with which we behold him by mutual love, by union with his human nature, for the same spirit which is in us and him unites us to him, and in the hope of the consummation, which is the certain hope of coming to him. Then question answer 48. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is and he answers not at all for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere so it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it and then here's his exposition and he kind of continues what he was just saying in question answer 47 this question contains another argument or objection which the ubiquitarians are wont to urge. In other, in other words, saying ubiquitarians want to keep pushing this agenda. The two natures are inseparably joined, according to them. Therefore, wherever the Godhead of Christ is, there his humanity must also necessarily be. And catch that there is no distinction in that scheme the human and the divine are one where we say as orthodox 
human nature are distinct, yet found truly in Christ. So he says the ubiquitarians are guilty of, first, with Nestorius, they've separated the nature in Christ inasmuch as they substitute for the union of these natures, the equaling, the equalizing, or the operation and working of one by the other. They say wherever one works, the other must necessarily also work in the same way. And then second, with Eutychus, they confound and blend these natures inasmuch as they make them equal. So there's no distinction. They're absolutely equal in their understanding. And the last, they take us, they take from us the weapons which, with which we oppose and refute the Arian and Sibelian heresies. And those are heresies either denying the divine or denying the humans. If you confound, if you put those two together, you cannot confute or you cannot refute those heresies. Then our scientist returns to the questions he had in question answer 46. He returns to the third one because he did the first two before. So the third question, for what purpose did Christ ascend into heaven? Christ ascended into heaven for his own glory and for that of his father. It was proper and necessary that he should have a heavenly kingdom. And still further, Christ ascended for our benefits and that in these three respects. In this first respect, that he might make intercession for us in heaven. He intercedes for us by the value of his sacrifice, by his own will, and by the consent of the Father. The second respect is that he might that we might also ascend and have assurance thereof. And then the third respect, that he might send the Holy Spirit and by him gather, comfort, and defend his church even to the end of the world. And then the next question from the question answer 46, question four. In what does the ascension of Christ differ from ours? Christ and ours agree in that both he and we ascend to the same place and he and we ascend to the same glory. They differ in the following respects. First, Christ ascended by his own peculiar power and virtue. Second, Christ ascended that we might, that he might be head, we shall ascend that we might be members. Third, the ascension of Christ is the cause of ours, but not the contrary. And fourth, the whole Christ ascended, but not the whole of Christ. He ascended only as to his human nature, but as it respects his divine it is also on earth. We shall ascend whole because we are wholly finite in nature. And the last question answer of Lord's Day 18. Number 49. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? Answer. First, he is our advocate in heaven before his father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a serpent stir pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. And you hear a little bit of Colossians in there too. 
And Ursinus exposits this question and answer. He begins, he approaches the last of the five questions. He began in question and answer 46. The fruits or benefits of Christ's ascension into heaven are chiefly these three. First, his intercession with the Father on our behalf, which embraces, as we have already remarked, the perpetual force and virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. Second, our glorification results from Christ's ascension into heaven. For if he who is our head has ascended, we also who are his members shall certainly ascend. Third, the mission of the Holy Ghost by whom he gathers, comforts, and defends his church even to the end of the world. There are other fruits, Ursina says, which result from the ascension of Christ that are less important than those which we have specified. They are, fourth, the ascension of Christ is a proof that remission of sins is fully granted to all those that believe, inasmuch as he could not have sat down upon the throne of God if he had not endured the punishment which our sins required. Fifth, it is a proof that Christ is indeed conqueror of death, sin, and the devil. Sixth, it is an evidence that we shall never be left destitute of comfort. And seventh, it is an assurance that Christ will forever defend us, since we know that he is our ever-glorious head and is exalted above all principalities and powers. Then he says, what are we then to understand by this article, I believe in Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven? Two things. First, that he did truly ascend into heaven, where he now is at the right hand of God until he comes to judge the world. And the lastly, second, he ascended for my sake and yours, and now appears in God's presence, making intercession for us, sends us the spirits, and what length take us to himself when will be and we will be where he is, reigning with him in glory. So that ends Lord's Day number 18 for Catechism Thursday 18. I hope you guys enjoyed this one, the distinction between his, between his divine and human nature, how that relates to his ascension in heaven, and how that benefits us as believers. Look forward to Saturday's book club with Sally Michael of Truth78 and her book, More Than a Story. This is fantastic. You will absolutely want to listen to this. And then Monday, we will have Reverend Dr. John Payne of the Gospel Reformation Network talking to us about Reformed worship. And this Saturday, as I said, with Sally Michael, we have some giveaways. So look forward to those episodes on the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. We'll see you then. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed theological truth. Please subscribe to us on your podcast catcher. Review us. Give us five stars. Help others find this podcast through your review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter 
If you want to follow us there, keep up with our updates and who we're interviewing next and a couple quotes that you guys might find really enriching. We hope to see you guys next week.